Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Crawford Gribben. And today my guest is Jeremy Black. Jeremy is Professor of History at Exeter University. And today we're talking to Jeremy about his new book, Military Strategy, A Global History, just published by Yale University Press. Jeremy, congratulations on the book and welcome back to the show. Many thanks indeed. It's great to have you here today. Before we chat about the book itself, could you tell us something about your own career, about your interests, and especially about how you've come to write about this particular topic of military strategy? Yes, I, I was hired in 1980 at the University of Durham as, in fact, the early modern Europeanist, and which meant they constructed it to cover the period 1560 to 1730 in European history. And that is what I essentially lectured on and taught um, in the 1980s. Um, as part of that, I was interested in military history. I've always thought military history is an interesting subject, one that's been dramatically underrated because so much of the discussion of it rests on the actual details of fighting as opposed to the broader questions of how military systems develop. And in the late 1980s, there was the fashionable idea of the military revolution in early modern Europe, and I thought that that was conceptually, methodologically, and empirically flawed. And that sort of triggered me going into the subject. I started off giving a set lecture in my course on the flawed nature of that analysis. Um, I wrote uh, more specific books on the Jacobite Risings and also on the American War of Independence. And then from there, I moved more generally into periods of military history, both uh, overall long-range ones, but also specific wars. There's three on World War II. There's one on World War I. And also books on particular types of warfare, uh, naval warfare, land warfare, uh, air warfare, fortifications, and so on. So a, a sort of a crime to trees, but there is a library out there, and there is, in fact, an intellectual um, strategy underlying it. Uh, every so often, people point out to me, um, there was one pointed out in my new book on strategy, that there, you know, aspects are missing, and that's because I've already covered them elsewhere and don't simply want to, you know, bore the reader by reprinting large amounts of text. Um, but, you know, although I have written a lot on other topics and we've discussed my work, for example, on the field of maps, national history and so on, I would say military history has been my major subject since the beginning of the 1990s. And I would also say that this book on strategy, which is my second book on strategy, I did an earlier book on strategy in the 18th century, specifically called Botting Power. But this bigger book on strategy is regarded by me as an important contribution to the field, because what I've tried to do is what I always try to do and what actually triggers a lot of my writing, which is an energy driven from the um, assumption and background that a lot of the existing work is flawed and limited. Now, you mentioned there in that description of the background to the book that your writing has a strategy. And one of the things that you're concerned to talk about in the introduction to this book is the way in which the rhetoric of strategy has been applied to lots of other things than 
military action or military planning. So what is strategy and how do you differentiate that from, let's say, tactics and operations? I think that's an excellent question. And I referenced your very first point. I mean, you will notice we're currently using military rhetoric to discuss how to deal with the current uh, pandemic. And, you know, wars have been proclaimed that I can remember against drugs, crime, cancer and so on. So, yes, I mean, I think there is a general leeching into a wider vocabulary of many of the terms associated with military matters. And no, that, that is true of strategy, which, as you say, is both the rhetorical term used to denote like war, something that is regarded as important and much as vague as that. And also, more specifically, uh, it's strategy, I would say, is an overarching vision of what an organization or individual wants to achieve, coupled with the set of objectives designed to make that possible. Um, and uh, in the case of war, strategy, therefore, because you, know, you can obviously have strategies which have nothing to do with uh, warfare. Business strategy is a classic instance of that. But in the case of war, um, um, it is, in a way, the the background to the detailed planning by which goals are implemented by military needs. And one of the difficulties has often been that um, there are conflations of these various characteristics, which is fine. I mean, language itself is inherently a loose process, but if one's looking for analytical precision, that doesn't necessarily help. Has the language of strategy developed or been used by in, in an increasing range of contexts as the failure of strategy has become more obvious. There's a, there's a lot in your book about declinism, the language of strategy is a lost art. How do you feel about this? Well, I was specifically referring there to the argument that's been used extensively in both Britain and the United States uh, to suggest that there has been a flaw in the analysis of war and what it's possible to achieve by war in recent decades. And more particularly, that was linked to um, discussion about the uh, results of the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the notion of strategy as being a lost art was then pushed quite hard by a number of writers, Hugh Strawn, for example, uh, in his work on strategy. It was discussed in Britain in the House of Commons, this thesis. And, you know, there is, there is, I think, a reason to argue that there have been serious flaws in planning. Of course, the assumption that there is a past golden age is one that one has to be very cautious about. So if there's no past golden age, where do you see the roots of our modern concept of strategy beginning to emerge? Well, when I say there's no golden age, that's, I think that that is objectively the case. But also, I think that's partly to do with what you said at the very outset, which is that strategy is a rhetorical tool in debate about prioritization as much as a description of a supposed rational process. So in other words, 
part of the problem here, and here I'm talking specifically about the discussion of war, we're not talking about, say, business strategy, part of the problem here is the misapplication, often by people who aren't even aware that they're doing it, are rather cliched and in many cases outmoded notions of what has been sometimes described as modernization theory. And you can see that in the ideas of so-called revolution in military affairs, you can see that in the idea of military revolutions, um, and in, you can see that in some of the discussion of strategy, the idea that inherently because you developed uh, general staffs from the late 19th century, that therefore you had a more appropriate, accurate and successful way of determining and implementing strategy than in alternative both prior and alternative uh, geographical contexts. Now, that tells you a lot about modernization theory. It doesn't necessarily, and doesn't necessarily tell you about very much about what has happened. And it takes us back to something I think we've discussed on this program, which is my friend, now last he recently died, Dennis Showalter, described um, in print military history as the last refuge of the weak historian. Well, he's obviously right. He was much more impolite, as Dennis always was, off the record. Uh, he often commented on what low-caliber people wrote on uh, general military systems and how they developed. And, you know, this aspect, this cult of the modernization thesis is part of that. So if you're asking me where does strategy emerge, I would say that there has always been issues of how to prioritize between alternative goals um, in all societies involving and using force, uh, that whether you talk about a formal language of strategy, which is one of the things I discussed in Plotting Power, I identified in particular French writers in the late uh, 18th century who played a key role, but that doesn't inherently mean that because the word was there that necessarily the practice was better or for that matter worse. Um, what you could argue, uh, if you wanted to push this in a radical direct, more radical direction, is that strategy became part of the process in which developing military professionalism sought to seize for itself a large decision-making role at the expense of non-military politicians. So one lot of politicians in uniform trying to downgrade one lot of politicians not wearing uniform. And that what that, what that then did was, in effect, to mean that the body which claimed to be the most proficient in strategy, German general staff, run up to World War I, in fact got it totally wrong because what it produced was um, a military plan that, put, that actually was rather heedless of wider um, geopolitical, socioeconomic, and indeed military practicalities. And I think, you know, this operationalization of strategic issues is one which, again, if you want to jump subjects, and this may not be uh, easy to do in the present context, but you could argue that it's what's going on at the moment in which the basic strategy, how do you keep the United States or Britain or France going, has been operationalized by becoming a matter of how do you handle death rates? coming through hospitals um, so that, you know, you've operationalized it because in some respects it seems the obvious thing to do. You hand it over to the professionals. But actually, it doesn't necessarily mean that wider strategic issues and priorities are correctly addressed. Hmm. Well, the, the book, just glancing at the contents page, Jeremy, the, the book covers a huge 
uh, canvas of context all the way through from the late medieval period through to the present day, more or less. Um, and you've talked there about some of the very hard factors that planners need to take into consideration. But as we look at this vast geographical and chronological scope, how do changes, for example, in moral ideas affect the development of military strategy? Oh, well, that is a fascinating question. Now, I don't want to push you to one side by saying I, I panel that in my uh, book last year on the causes of war, which I know you have read and I know we discussed on a podcast. Uh, I think those are important. I think in particular, the idea that you validate yourself by showing that you have been attacked um, is part of the 20th century moralization in the West of war. Uh, one has to be careful here because too much of the literature on war and strategy as a whole assumes that Western paradigms are the dominant ones. I think that is very problematic. Um, but there is also the point that um, in terms of morality as a broader sense, in other words, what a domestic society is willing to accept, the nature of societies in which the majority of the population are literate and people are more involved or aware of national politics, and you could argue that that is a relatively recent development in, hum in human history, has affected the context within which um, strategy is articulated to the public. And that, I think, is an important point and an important development, although it doesn't mean that what we loosely call public opinion is only something of the last 150 years. That would be a mistaken assumption, but it's certainly different in its processes. And I made that point about non-Western societies. I tried in particular in plotting power to look at uh, China in the 18th century, and I have tried in other works to look at what you might call nomadic societies. Um, and one has to be wary of assuming that the Western model is the only one. What is different is that in the 19th century and 20th century, um, the and particularly after... Um, the defeat of China um, in the 1840s and the 1860s and the effective um, subjugation or uh, diminishment of Japan in the 1850s. It very much was, in terms of international war, more of a Western narrative for a period. Um, and I think that that is a significant difference about the discussion of strategy in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century. And you can then take that forward by asking the question as to whether communism as an in effect European ideology, which is what it was initially, actually um, takes that, uh, that situation further forward. Um, if you were to do that, and that's rather an interesting way of looking at it, then the key development in modern non-Western strategy becomes um, not non-Western states using, in effect, practices of authoritarian state socialism, because that's the communist tradition, uh, but rather the um, revival, uh, strengthening, whatever terms you wish to use, of, uh, of, uh, of fundamentalist Islam. 
And then it becomes very interesting to look at, obviously, Iran and its um, strategic ideas. So I think those are important points which need thinking about. Hmm. Now, if I could just push you back a little to the early modern period um, in which, as you mentioned, your thinking about strategy, I suppose, began, at least formally. Can we see any kind of religious military strategy being developed in that period? Should we understand English anti-Catholicism in the eight, in the in the sixteenth century, let's say, or um, even through much of the seventeenth century? Should we understand that as informing military strategy in a significant way? Well, I think certainly um, religion provides you with a total worldview. It provides you with the idea of conflict, both with those who are irreligious and those who much more seriously, from the point of view of religions from most of world history, follow different religions, including, uh, as it were, the antithesis, the devil or whatever is, however the devil is conceptualized. And from that perspective, warfare, conflict spans the social and the individual. It spans the existential and life on earth. And to that extent, strategy is an inherent proposition going all the way back. And the notion that it, uh, that it derives at a certain period is, is part of this, as I've said, this modernization cult, uh, which I think one has to be wary about. Um, so, you know, you can discuss um, the way in which uh, our sources, obviously, for the ancient world is, is, are limited. But if you're thinking, for example, of the Iliad, um, you are thinking there of a context in which seeking the, uh, the support of particular gods is important uh, to success in war. And that captures a more total view of war um, that, in a way, I would say is, is a more important aspect of strategic thinking and strategic practice than we tend always to be comfortable with. So, Jeremy, in Chapter 4, you think a lot about Republican strategies using the examples of America and France as states or nations, perhaps, which are born in violence and suddenly have to position themselves and plan for themselves on the international stage. How does this happen? Well, in each case, both the United States and Republican France, these were states born in violence and through war, and each of them had to produce a new strategic logic, not least for public consumption, but also to help to define their goals and means in what was a highly competitive environment. And that remained the case for the United States after independence, because there was no assumption that there would not necessarily be another war. Now, the transition is different for France because it already has a state um, and, as it were, geopolitical uh, traditions and pressures. In the case of the United States, it's different. But for both of them, there are ideologies which, in a sense, are universal. Now, the interesting difference is that the uh, French revolutionary ideology, uh, rather like the Soviet one in the 19, early 1920s, there is an attempt to propound it. Uh, in the case of the United States, um, as it were, uh, the, the rights of man in theory are declaimed for everybody, and they're, but are then not exported other than an attempt to shove them down the throats of the Canadians. Um, so that's a very, very different context, reflecting in part 
uh, a different state. I mean, the, the federal character of the United States is one that makes it harder to implement a utopian strategy of enforced virtue uh, on either Americans or non-Americans, whereas in the case of France, it's easier to attempt that, or at least in the, the illusion of its leaders of the of the revolutionary period. Hmm. Why Why do you and many others who write about this period describe German strategy in World War One as a failure? Uh, well, Germany, to the best of my knowledge, lost World War One. I mean, just as Germany lost, to the best of my knowledge, World War Two. So a lot of the fantasies about how marvellous the German military were in either World War, let alone German strategy, I deeply thought. Um, in specific terms of, of, of World War One, uh, Germany was seeking through its planning in 1914 for a one-front war, which was to be achieved by quick victory on the Western Front and then to be able to fight on one front against uh, the Russians. Well, that obviously failed. Uh, they failed to think adequately about the consequences or the risk and then the consequences of bringing uh, Britain into the war. Uh, so that was a failure. Um, they failed to think adequately about the incubus uh, of Austria. So that was a failure. Um, so, no, there were multiple failures in uh, German strategic planning prior to and practice during the early stages of World War I. You mentioned from time to time in the book Basil Littlehart. How do you value his contribution to strategic thinking? Uh, I think Littlehart was somebody who... Um, Obviously, there's, a, there's an excellent biography of him by the late Alex Danchuk. He was a, um, a exuberant self-publicist. But I think the, the important thing about him was that he uh, reached out in the 20s and 30s to a wider public in his journalism than J.F.C. Fuller, who was in many senses a more talented individual, uh, did. Um, but in part... Uh, Little Heart found it very difficult, not surprisingly, um, to fix on what he saw as the desired outcome. After all, it was unclear, very unclear in the 20s and 30s, um, what the nature of a future war would be and against whom. Um, the idea that World War I had been a terrible uh, burden and blow for Britain was obviously the case, and the desire to go for either indirect campaigning, in other words, attacking one's opponent when they were weakest, uh, so not engaging their main battle army. You can understand why Little Heart at, at times emphasized that. You could understand why at times, as with a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the writers and commentators of the 20s, he emphasized silver bullet weaponry, whether they were tanks or aircraft, uh, as an, as a, as an uh, opportunity to, as it were, leap over the existing on-pass. Uh, all of that is understandable. To say that he was somebody who operated within his context um, is not intended to disparage him. I mean, after all, the same thing was true of, you know, somebody who usually gets a lot of plaudits, Michael Howard, whose work on war was very much um, uh, very much on the Western tradition of war and didn't really give enough uh, credence to non-Western military traditions. And you could say the same thing of most, uh, I would say, nearly all writing of strategy in the last 50 years. 
So it's very easy to criticise Little Hart. And Little Hart, one of the things he did um, was he left his papers. They survived in King's College, London, where you go and read them. And they're hilarious. I mean, for example, having sold the college his papers, he then attempts to uh, bully the college. And under, under the proviso that he retains them to his death, he then attempts to bully the college into paying his electricity bill, for example, on the grounds that he's looking after their assets for them. And, um, you know, uh, the, um, it's in a way all too easy to make fun of Little Heart because you can see how his ideas changed. But well, another way of looking at that is that, you know, the situation was a varied one. Where I think he was egregiously at fault um, was his, and there's some good work on this by Alaric Searle, um, was his, um, as it were, um, advocate, advocacy after World War II of the Wehrmacht generals, people like Adarian and Manstein. Um, I mean, Manstein was a terrible war criminal. Um, and, you know, Little Hart took the view, oh, these were just chaps obeying orders. Now, we know a lot more about the Wehrmacht, but actually quite a lot was known at the time, uh, which is why, you know, the Soviets were inclined to uh, be much more brutal in their treatment of them and the extent to which many of them were complicit, not just in the large-scale slaughter of Jews, but also the large-scale slaughter of prisoners. Um, and um, Little Hart, I think, comes across very unattractively in his being, in a way, played by these people. They all told him how brilliant he was, and he then basically pleaded their cause with his influential friends and contacts within Britain. Hmm. Well, Jeremy, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Yes, I've got a number of books um, coming out. Um, I've just uh, produced not just this book on strategy, but I've produced a short history of Portugal, um, which follows the series of, in which Spain and uh, Italy is in, uh, and are in, I should say. And on the war side, I have a book specifically on strategy in World War II forthcoming, and also a book on mapping World War II. That sounds fantastic. Hopefully we'll get a chance to speak to you about some of those projects in due course. Thank you for your time this I'm, morning, Jeremy. Very, can I just say, can, can I just cut in? I very much hope so, but also, you know, obviously most listeners are currently at the present moment in lockdown and somewhat frustrated. I think this is an opportunity for us to spend a lot of time reading and thinking and I'm very much hopeful that alongside the anxiety which we all face and fear, uh, I very much hope that a lot of people are using their minds in that way. And rather than just sitting there and watching entertainment on the television, uh, there is an enormous amount out there to read. And I very much hope people are listening to your podcasts and reading books and thinking about them. Absolutely. At least Amazon is still delivering books. That's one sign of good news, I think. Um, thanks to everyone else for listening in today. 